Whether you love them or hate them, beauty pageants still play a significant role in American popular culture. Today's guest argues that their evolution is wrapped up in the history of feminism in the United States. She's Hillary Levy Friedman this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. Joining me as he does every week is my great friend and co-host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal. Story in the Public Square is an effort to study, celebrate, and tell stories that matter. We sit down every week with the best storytellers around, scholars, journalists, filmmakers, and more, to make sense of the big stories shaping the United States today. This week, we're joined by Hillary Levy Friedman, a sociologist at Brown University who's the author of a new book, Here She Is, The Complicated Reign of the Beauty Pageant in America. Hillary, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, you know, there's a lot that we want to talk to, but let's get right into the book. Uh, tell us a little bit about what it is. So this book is really the story of American feminism told through the lens of beauty pageants. And to some people, this might seem very unexpected because there's been a very strong feminist critique of beauty pageants. But what I think that I show and hope that I show to the reader is that really beauty pageants and feminism have been linked since the 1850s in the United States. How, how long have there actually been beauty pageants in the United States? Well, that's a little bit of a complicated question, but the very first commercial, by which I mean people paid to compete and all of that, happened in 1854 and was started by P.T. Barnum, the very first beauty contest. So if you're thinking about how women were judged just based on how they looked, that was 1854. If we're talking about what we think of as the, you know, bathing suit contest, that was in the 1880s. And then, of course, what we think of as sort of the grandmother of all the beauty pageants, the Grand Dame is Miss America, uh, which started in 1921 and is coming up on its 100th anniversary, which is quite remarkable in terms of the history of the United States. So you have uh, a very clear and close connection to Miss America in the in the form of your mother. Tell us about, uh, tell us about your upbringing and, and your mother's reign and how that influenced you and your thinking and we could do a whole show on that, but just give us sort of briefly the background on, on your upbringing with your mom. I was about to say, how much time do you have? But um, <laughs> that, that could be a whole other book, honestly. But, you know, the first thing I say when people ask, how did you get interested in this? Is I say, I have never competed in a beauty pageant, but my mother is a former Miss America. So my mother was Miss America in 1970. She competed the year after they, quote unquote, burned bras in front of the Miss America pageant, um, which was a very big deal and many see as the establishment of a second wave of feminism. So I'm an only child um, and I grew up, my mom raised me as a single mom and I you know, just grew up in the super feminine environment, but I have always been a bookworm. 
And so when I went off to college, sort of far away from where I grew up in Michigan, and my mother had been Miss Michigan before she was Miss America, um, subconsciously at the time, I actually started studying beauty pageants when I was an undergraduate and I did my senior thesis on child beauty pageants and why mothers enroll their very young daughters. Now, of course, I understand this as a way to stay connected and it's the result of all of that and that complicated journey is Here She Is, the book. Um, but because I am both an academic and a bookworm and a strong feminist, and because I grew up the daughter of a Miss America, I feel like I can see both sides and both the positives and the negatives of the beauty pageant world. So you, you talk about the second wave of feminism and in your book, which is really beautifully done, by the way, uh, and eye-opening, I think, for will be for a lot of people who have sort of the stereotypical image, you talk about the three waves of feminism. That was a term I had not heard before. So if you can kind of break that down for us, the third, second and first, and where we are now, I assume, in the third. Yes. Yeah, so, well, some people might disagree if we're in the third or the fourth. Part of my argument in this book is that we are in the third. What What is not confusing at all is the second wave of feminism. So I mentioned this, quote unquote, bra burning incident. And I say, quote unquote, because people actually didn't burn bras, even it's, though it's the source of the pejorative term. But second wave of feminism was really the women's rights movements that started in the late 1960s and is called the second wave because it was the first major organized movement after women got the right to vote. Um, so 19th Amendment was passed in 1920. Again, big 100th anniversary this year. Not an accident that Miss America probably started in 1921, a year later. And so that first movement to secure women's rights in the public sphere uh, was getting women the right to vote. So women have the right to vote, they're out in public, but are they getting the education? Are they getting the job opportunities? No. And so that was really the work of the late 1960s and 1970s women's rights movement. Now, some people consider the 1980s and 1990s what has tended to be identified as identity politics movement as the third wave. To me, um, and as I talk about in Here She Is, the third wave of feminism started in 2017, in January 2017 with the Women's March. Um, in reaction to the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States. And we see Me Too, the fight to make the workplace and educational settings safe for women, um, free from sexual assault and sexual harassment. And so that is how I think of these three major organized parts of American feminism. What was the first wave? That, that obviously dates to the 1800s. Talk, yes. talk about that. So in 1848, it's what many people think of as the first organized um, public event to fight for women's rights. And that was in Seneca Falls. And so Seneca Falls, when it originally started, was not just to secure the right to vote for women. So throughout the 1850s, 60s, and 70s, the women's movement really had to figure out exactly what they were going after. You know, they knew that they wanted women to not just be tied to a man and have their rights secured through matrimony, um, but it took until after the Civil War to really hone in and say, we are fighting for women to get the right to vote. So from the 1880s to 1920, the first wave of feminism was focused on securing the passage of the 19th Amendment. So, you know, you, you, you the central themes throughout the book is the interrelationship between these broad social movements and the beauty pageant industry, for lack of a better term. Uh, unpack that for us, because I think a lot of folks have a view that, you know, beauty pageants 
well, the, the term beauty pageant sort of objectifies women. Uh, so sort of explain to us, you know, you have a more sophisticated argument than that. Uh, what is the relationship between pageants uh, and, and, and actual, the, the, the hard work of, of, of advancing women's rights? Well, I think one of the most symbolic things I can point to is that in the early 20th century, when women were fighting for the right to vote, and they would organize these public parades and what they actually called public pageants at the time, but pageant meant in the sort of broadest sense of a performance and a ritual. But in those um, public events, especially in the parades, the, the suffragists would wear banners. And those banners would often say votes for women or have the very traditional um, colors of purple and white and yellow, which were identified with the suffrage movement. Now, when Miss America started in 1921, they are wearing those same sashes. Um, but now, instead of saying votes for women or having some other message like that, it's identifying who that woman is by where she lives geographically. And so that sash was co-opted by beauty pageants um, to you know, show this new phase of women in the public sphere. And so I think that, that that really surprises a lot of people and that relationship. And then when you think about, you know, not just beauty pageants today, but you think about, you know, women doing a bachelorette party or something like that, and they go out wearing the banners and, you know, that really is rooted in the feminist movement. Now, the second wave, um, you know, that started in 1968 and launched this sort of much broader women's movement was very deliberately selected by a sort of radical women's liberation group called the New York Radical Women to start outside of the Miss America pageant for precisely the reasons that you said, that pageants are seen as objectifying women and reducing them to only how they look. And so um, choosing to do this protest in Atlantic City on the boardwalk outside of the final night of competition at the Miss America pageant gave those feminists a platform because Miss America was so popular, because women were now in the public sphere, and it gave them a springboard to get their message out there. So give us an overview of the most famous pageant, of course, which is Miss America, an overview of the founding of it. It was founded in 1921 and uh, in Atlantic City, where it remained for many years and, and still is. What was so, what motivated and who founded this and for what purpose? So on this, there is no doubt that it was a group, a small group of businessmen in Atlantic City who most of them owned hotels and they wanted to extend the uh, season past Labor Day. And so, as we all know, it's still pretty hot in September um, in most parts of the United States past Labor Day, which we still sort of see as the traditional end of summer. But those business and businessmen wanted to continue to make money. And so they thought, what better way to encourage people to come back and to stay than to have women in their bathing suits in public uh, competing against one another? And so the, really the roots of Miss America are commercial purposes. And yes, it was quite sort of out there for women to be in public in their bathing suits in 1921 and being judged on how they looked and on their bodies. And so in that way, those women were um, really sort of renegades in some sense for putting themselves out there. It wasn't until the late 1930s 
that that message got transformed into one of women's empowerment, one of women's, you know, you have a talent and you can perform that. And then in the early 1940s, this aspect of scholarship became involved. And so the focus on women's education um, really transformed the pageant. And that was because of the intervention of one particular woman who um, sort of is improbably named Lenora Slaughter, who was brought in to transform the pageant and make it much more respectable from its sort of commercial and object objectifying roots. In the early days, of course, it women of color were not allowed into the pageant. Why was that? And when did that change? Because obviously it did change. Well, so I just sort of lauded this woman, Lenora Slaughter, for coming in and giving women an opportunity to pursue higher education through the introduction of scholarships. But with people are complicated. And it was Lenora Slaughter, actually, who put in what was called known as Rule 7, that all contestants had to certify that they were of good health and of the white race. And so she was giving women this opportunity, but then excluding a large group of women at the same time. I do want to mention the 1920s, one of the first Miss Americas was a woman who identified herself as Native American. So um, there was some sort of de facto segregation for some women, but it wasn't made explicit until Lenora Slaughter came in in the late 1930s. Wow. Now, we don't know exactly when Rule 7 was revoked because, you know, it's just not something that people like to talk about or felt comfortable talking about. But we do know for certain by the 1950s, um, there was a Miss Hawaii who identified as Asian American who competed. And but it was not until the year 1970, the year my mother gave up her crown as Miss America, that there was the first African-American contestant in Atlantic City. So change was a bit slow to come to the pageant, um, although not necessarily slower than change we were seeing, unfortunately, in broader American society. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 17 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Dr. Hillary Levy Friedman, a sociologist at Brown University who is also the author of an interesting new book on the role of beauty pageants in American society titled Here She Is, The Complicated Reign of the Beauty Pageant in America. Hillary is on Twitter, too, at H. Levy Friedman. That's H-L-E-V-E-Y-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. So Miss America is, is, is as you say, the, the grand dam, but there's Miss Universe. There's, there's a variety of other pageants out there right now. How would you characterize the, the role of pageants in American society today? So you rightly point out that Miss Universe, which also includes Miss USA in that um, umbrella system, pageant system, as we would call it, um, is a big competitor to Miss America. Now, of course, that was the pageant that Donald Trump 
owned for much of the 90s, all of the 2000s and into the 2010s. Um, and so it's very interesting there because the reason Miss Universe and Miss USA started was because a group of, again, businessmen wanted to keep that um, story of women are competing and they're in bathing suits and we're just judging them based on how they look. And when Miss America changed, they said, oh, no, 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 no. A swimsuit company called Catalina, who was a sponsor, said, we like what was going on there and we're going to start our own. So that Miss USA and Miss Universe was born out of Miss America in the 1950s. And so I think that we still see that push and pull of our beauty pageants about how women look or our beauty pageants about how women's role has changed in society and that you also should have a talent and that you also should be pursuing higher education and that you also should have some charity or philanthropic um, goal that interests you as well, which is another major component of Miss America that evolved in the 1980s and 1990s. And so Miss USA, in some sense, is less complicated. It's very clear about who she is and what she should be, whereas Miss America is much more muddled. The message is much more muddled. But to me, that says much more about it's a much more accurate representation of the role of womanhood in American society these days. How would you characterize uh, the Miss Universe contest uh, under Donald Trump's ownership and supervision? That probably, again, could be a very long answer, but just give us, a, again, an overview. Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump, when he purchased the Miss Universe system, made, uh, there were no illusions. This was entirely about attractive women, beautiful women, and rewarding them based on how they look. Um, in fact, he was actually interested in the late 1980s in getting involved in Miss America, because if you'll recall, he used to have lots of hotels in Atlantic City, the Ta Trump Taj Mahal um, and others. And once he found out Miss America was a nonprofit and was focused on education and all of that, he was like, yeah, this one is not for me. And he went on to pursue buying and was successful in buying Miss Universe. Um, there's no doubt, as we all know, as came out in the 2016 presidential election, that he used the opportunity of owning Miss Universe, which included not just Miss Universe and Miss USA, but also Miss Teen USA to go backstage. And he sort of fulfilled the worst stereotypes about um, stereotypes, which are rooted in fact, clearly, but about objectifying women and that it's just about how they look. I mean, he would go back and backstage at Miss Teen USA and quote unquote inspect and ogle the girls who were not even of age. You know, the it, was it 2018 that Miss America did away with the with the swimsuit competition. Yes. So what? So you you were quoted uh, in a lot of different places talking about that. Then uh, for our audience who's maybe not familiar with uh, a the controversy and b the, sort of the reaction, just sort of spell that out for us. So as you can imagine, starting in 1968 with that protests outside of Miss America, one of the biggest, um, you know, complaints that feminists had was if this is really this Miss America pageant is really about getting scholarship money. Why in the world do you need to wear a bathing suit? Not just a bathing suit, but walk around in a bathing suit and heels at the same time, which is like it's a, not what it's a reasonable thought. question. Right. <laughs> so it's something that, you know, the Miss America program had really struggled with 
Um, and it always kept coming up. And that was the biggest feminist critique of the event itself. In the sort of mid to late 1990s, there was a public vote. Should Miss America keep the swimsuit portion of the competition? To be honest, it was a little bit rigged because it was a live phone vote that you had to pay to call in to vote during Miss America. So of course, like all the people who loved Miss America weren't going to be the ones voting. And it was a landslide to keep the swimsuit competition. And shortly thereafter, bikinis were allowed again, which hadn't been allowed since the 1950s. So, um, you know, many women talked about, content, former contestants talked about the swimsuit competition as being something that they embraced, it empowered them, they felt like they learned about physical fitness and nutrition and all of that. But many others were like, this was the worst thing, that was a horrible 10 seconds that I had to walk on stage. Um, but if I did that, I could literally do anything for the rest of my life if I did that in front of millions of people. So it was always very complicated for the pageant, both in terms of responding to critics and then even internally. So in the wave of Me Too, um, which as many of you might know, Gretchen Carlson, who was Miss America, um, played an interesting role because before the sort of hashtag Me Too movement started about sexual harassment, she had sued her former boss at Fox News, Roger Ailes. And you know that sort of launched her into a new phase of her career and a new platform. And so when Miss America faced its own reckoning over um, complaints about sexual harassment of former Miss Americas themselves, she was brought in to sort of right the ship and she took the opportunity to say, Miss America should not be about what you look like in a bathing suit and we are saying bye-bye bikini. So I know there's a lot of players there, I apologize for how complicated that was, but it really was a decades long change in the making. So and you 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 wrote at the time though that you thought that there was still a role for for fitness uh, mm -hmm. in, in the pageants. It, it just if you could explain that piece of it, that'd be, I think, interesting to folks. Yeah. So I mean, one of the biggest successes that really no one can argue with of second wave feminism was the passage of Title IX that opened up um, athletic opportunities to women both in high school and in college. And so there's never been a time truly that. Um, the focus on what women's bodies can do athletically has been more embraced. And so if you want to think or tell the story that the swimsuit competition was about physical fitness and health and nutrition and not just about how you look, then you can make an argument that there should be some aspect of the competition that celebrates and embraces that. And there is, um, you know, precedent. So there's a teen portion of Miss America that started in the 2000s called Miss America's Outstanding Teen, in which they come out and do sort of a physical fitness routine. The contestants like doing planks and jumping jacks and that sort of thing. And America's, what used to be called America's Junior Miss, um, which many people have done. Diane Sawyer famously won America's Junior Miss. It's now called Distinguished Young Woman. They also do a physical fitness portion of the competition and Miss Earth does as well. You actually do a obstacle course. And so, um, you know, for women to be athletic and out there in that way is also a feminist statement. And so to sort of eliminate it completely in this moment um, at this portion of history seemed perhaps a bit short-sighted to me. So the book will be published, released shortly after this episode airs. Uh, Jim and I had the uh, pleasure of reading advanced copies so uh, the general public has not read it as of this recording. Can you anticipate reaction from the general public and even more specifically from 
fellow feminists, my guess is it will not there will not be a universal one type of reaction. Talk about that. Right. I mean, it's so easy in some sense to say this is all universally bad and it is only about objectifying women. Um, and I think, again, with Miss America, that's always been complicated because for better or for worse, Miss America is still the largest source of scholarship money to women in this country. That's a hard thing for a lot of people to wrap their minds around. You want to learn more about this. John Oliver did a piece on this um, package in 2015, 2016, in which he takes us on. But he's like, this, this is still actually true. I think when you think about beauty pageants more broadly, not just Miss USA and not just Miss America, when you think about pageants like Miss Navajo, um, which are ways for Native American women to amplify and promote their culture. When you think about pageants for young girls and women who are differently abled, who have different physical capabilities and the ways in which um, participating in a pageant and being celebrated in public is not something that they always get the opportunity to do, you can quickly start to see how beauty pageants more generally are much more complicated. And so they are not for everybody, but for some people, they provide an opportunity to be out in public and to develop skills that perhaps women were not, have still not been as able to develop as men have been. And so in many ways, you know, you can say, the fact that beauty pageants still continue to exist can hurt women, but it also just shows the work that still needs to be done for women to sort of quote unquote catch up to where men are or have the opportunity to develop the similar platforms that men have had, perhaps in professional sports. You make you know, the, the intriguing point that some women compete simply because they enjoy competing in pageants. They're not trying to make a statement um they're you know certainly willing to to accept whatever scholarship money whatever but th that's not their motivation i found that quite intriguing um talk about that well like the best example i can give from pop culture right now is um another show that feminists take issue with at times and that's bravo's real housewives franchise and you know a lot of people say oh this is my guilty pleasure to watch this and oh these women are you know riding their husband's coattails or they only care about these very traditionally feminine things like how you look or cooking whatever it is um and so to me on some level when you dismiss a whole you know millions and millions of people watch the real housewife franchise when you just want to dismiss those um millions of people as frivolous and dismiss their interests you're just overlooking such a major part of American society that, you know, then does have political implications. And, and I point to Donald Trump there because so many people just dismissed his supporters in 2016, um, dismissed him because he was so associated with reality TV. And, you know, we have to see how did these popular culture institutions develop in order to really understand we, where we are as a society and as a country. And so to me, it's just it's okay that people make the choice to do these things and to, that's not a choice I might personally make, but in the end, wasn't that the entire purpose of second wave feminism and feminism more broadly to say, women, you have a choice and you can go do your PhD and be a professor at Brown, you know, or you can also choose to be a stay at home mom 
who embraces these various aspects of like hyper feminine culture. And those choices should be seen as okay. Hillary, it's a great point to leave it on. Thank you so much for being with us. She's Hillary Levy Friedman. The book is Here She Is. You want to check it out. That's all the time we have this week. But if you want to know about more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org. We can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.